Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Insights with Experts. Joining us here today, we are very, very fortunate to have Mr. Johannes Romer. Uh, Mr. Johannes Romer is the current director at Mind to Matters. Um, Mr. Johannes Romer has also done numerous work in the past in consulting. He's worked with people for all of his life, and it's one of the things that he really likes to talk about. And he's also done quite a lot of coaching in his life as well. So there's a lot that we can talk about there. Johannes, it's absolutely wonderful to have you here today. How are you? Thank you very much, Sam. Happy to be here and greetings to London for later on as well. Of course. And also joining us here today, our guest student is going to be Idris Din. So Idris is a current psychology student at the University of Exeter over in the UK. Idris, how are you? Hey, Sham uh, and hi, Johannes. Very happy to be here. I'm looking forward to today's episode of um, Insights with Experts. Awesome, awesome. So, Johannes, I'm going to get straight into the first question, which we would like to ask you. And essentially what that is, is what made you want to go into consulting and what does maybe the role of a consultant actually entail? Okay, for, um, let's stay with honest answers right from the beginning, um, since I want to come back to that in the end as well with your last question. Uh, consulting is uh, probably like corporate finance, uh, law, some of these professions where lots of uh, graduates want to go. Uh, it's glamorous, it's with big companies, has pretty good pay. Um, so I make no secret that also I thought um, that uh, management consultancy would be a hell of an interesting job to go to. So that's why I looked. Um, unfortunately, my applications were not successful, so I didn't go to the companies um, uh, where I wanted to go and instead um, took a very different route uh, as an entry. Awesome, awesome. Um, I would also maybe like to talk about as well in terms of what the role of a consultant entails and as well as that, I mean, all of the different kinds of consulting that we have, so, you know, types of firms, I mean, maybe does consulting differ in certain parts of the world as well? Um, yeah, let's uh, maybe start a bit with the consulting first. Uh, like I said, it very often has a glamorous touch, but uh, when you start, like with all of these similar um, professions, it's a lot, a lot of work, um, sweat work. Um, so you start, thank you speaking, as the one who has to, <laughs> to burn the most hours. Uh, in consulting, uh, you start as a, a, on an entry level uh, to do the legwork of the senior guys. Uh, legwork means a lot of data crunching, a lot of presentation writing, but maybe if, um, for better understanding what the process is. Uh, in consulting, very often, uh, consultants are accused of asking clever questions to the client, then um, playing them back to them and charge a lot of money for that. There's probably some truth to it, uh, but if you go into the process, um, you start first, of course, by understanding what the client's problem is, no matter in which sort of consulting you are. We come back to the different types of consulting later. Um, <clears throat> now, that is client engagement. That's usually for the more experienced people uh, because you must have seen quite a bit. Obviously, engagement with clients um, to understand the problem is not always easy. Once you have done that, and usually the junior consultant, which would be you guys after graduation, uh, comes along. Um, says usually nothing, uh, takes a lot of notes, and then the real work starts uh, when you come home because then your boss will tell you and we need to analyze this, we need to dig up this, we need to uh, do research and so on and so on. And that's when your work would start. Um, nowadays easier because of course with abundance of data and information on the internet, I still started by going to conference boards, uh, libraries, um, flipping through fed uh, volumes and so on until you come with some ideas, some answers to the question you've collected during this client engagement process. 
Um, <clears throat> then it goes back to your boss, who then tries to make sense of it. Um, very often he's not happy with what you found and he's asking you to do more or cut up the tables in a different way. So there's a lot of data processing um, until you can come to something where the consultant, the engagement consultant, plays this back to the customer, either as a solution, as a suggestion, as a risk analysis, as some kind of an outcome where it says, I think this is what you need to do or this is what you should be changing and so on. So this would be then in the form of a presentation, again, with a lot of work involved, a PowerPoint deck um, can look easy and very often it's boring, but there's a ton of work behind. And the good senior consultant insists until the last dot and the last um, T is crossed uh, that it's finished. So it's long hours to prepare this, uh, which is where you come, like in many of these professions, to 60, 80 hours of work. Um, that is the price for the fame, that's the price for the glamour. Uh, you get to usually travel a lot, um, not in the moment, but otherwise um, you're spending this week here and the next week here. Sounds very nice, but you only see the client's office, the hotel room and everything else in between. So it is a slog in the initial years um, and you pay for it um, by many hours. Um, once you're through, which is usually one or two years, you either fed up or you start moving up the chain. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, that sounds really, really cool. I mean, I think from what it sounds like from a university perspective, it's often that, you know, it's this very, I think you're right, it's a very profession that sort of students look at and they, they think, okay, wow, I will get paid a lot. This looks like something that I really want to hop, hop into. But I think, as you said, there are lots of hours to it. And I think that's like a lot of other jobs as well. And yeah, I think that's really, really interesting. So moving on, uh, the next main subject which we wanted to talk about was your work with people. So over the years, in despite of what job that you've been doing, I think it's safe to, to say that you have grown akin for working with people and sort of what the relationship is that you have with, with them. So the first question that I would like to ask is, so why do you put people always at the center of focus in whatever work that you know, you're currently with? Well, <clears throat> maybe uh, not always, but pretty soon into the career. Um, I am from Germany, so obviously in Germany, you have technology plays a very big role. And um, hopefully it's so, such a good technology that clients uh, will come to you or customers will come to you and buy because it's such, uh, just so good. In the meantime, I would say you can buy technology almost everywhere at very high levels. So getting the best technology is not anymore what it used to be. I wouldn't know many areas where you have such a unique technology that you say, well, I have to have this and otherwise it doesn't work. You can buy it elsewhere and for that you need money. Um, find money in today's money markets is not difficult either. A uh, hundred million, a billion, uh, you name it, uh, the world is flush with cash. Um, so raising it is for a good business idea, not a problem. Mm -hmm. But even if you put the two best of these together, <clears throat> when if you look where things go or wrong, where things get screwed up, it's not the technology blew up or the money dried up, it's because a person screwed up or persons or the interaction between persons, buyers and sellers um, in uh, market players. So that is why um, when I joined um, um, in 2000, a company, it's a Swedish company actually, um, and um, they have a motto, called, um, people make strategies work, sounds very flashy and very nice, but it actually is the case. 
if you pick the right person or not the right person is far more important than if you have the best technology and the most of money. Okay. So, Charles, I wanted to specifically talk about your stint as a, as a head hunter. And here you worked with many firms who wanted to hire people and look for a job, uh, to look, look, look for jobs. I mean, what were some of the key uh, characteristics, I, I guess, in this, match in this matchmaking scheme? I mean, especially for perhaps young students who want to go in and find their first jobs, what were the key things that you would look for in these students as well? Um, let me answer a bit broader first. Um, headhunters very often uh, look for a counterpart in another company. Yeah, so you're the technical director in, I don't know, a chemicals company. So I look for another technical director in a competing chemicals company uh, to plug them out and plug them in, um, which is um, also what you call poaching. Um, that's the fairly easy job, uh, but that is not always an answer. Um, if you do a little bit more and you go back to consulting, you do a proper analysis, you do a proper client interview, uh, where's the company, at what stage, uh, is it in crisis, is it in expansion, very quickly you come to uh, different requirements, which is of course technical skills. Um, I mean, if you need to have a chemical degree, it, um, uh, it is simply you need to have one. Um, <clears throat> um, but otherwise, it is lots of transferable skill. Transferable skill is where you can apply uh, a skill which you acquired in one environment and you transfer it to another one. Um, let me give you an, uh, an example because it's a bit difficult to understand. Um, we were looking for the uh, operations director for the first contact lens manufacturing facility in Singapore. There was just no other plant anywhere in Asia. So unless you bring somebody from Europe or America, there is no candidate to recruit. Now we were looking then together with a client for transferable skills, which in this case is, you need to understand high speed, very, very small tolerances in a very, very uh, high unit output environment. Cut the long story short, we, pay, we found the head of maintenance of Singapore Press Holdings, which is of course a newsprint uh, company, which goes at similar speeds, with similar precision, although a totally different environment. But the skills were transferable enough so that this person can adapt it, learn it from another environment. And that's the long answer to your question. Um, look for skills which can be applied in more than one company, in more than one environment. Um, sounds a bit difficult, but um, you start somewhere and we come later to the role of passion and uh, excitement in jobs and so on. But if you look too early for specialist skills, you can of course become a super specialist in your field. Um, but at the same time, uh, it's going to be very difficult to transfer this to somewhere else. So start a bit broader, um, stay close to your talents and to your passions, um, but then look around what else you could learn, which can be interesting to the next employer. And then, then, then you will be found. Would, would you say that potentially the rules of this game, I guess, we, we could call it, uh, has perhaps changed because of now with COVID-19? I mean, that's obviously brought in lots of change, changes as well. Would you say that potentially, I mean, what, what would you say are some of the skills that students should be looking to gain as of now with COVID around that can really help us attract employers and so on? Um, I think uh, hopefully COVID is temporary. Um, so I think the key rule of the game for me is that you collect experience as quickly as you can. So when you start studying and um, uh, some of you guys I know even from school time, um, uh, but latest when you start studying, try to gain experience of any sort um, 
parallel to studies if it's possible, otherwise in the breaks and so on, because that gives you already some workplace skills before you finish. Um, because very simple, um, much too often students don't have an idea how the reality looks like. They come with a perfect degree, it's nice textbook and so on and so on, um, but the reality check hasn't set in yet and that sets you back. Whereas if you have done some internships, if you've done um, in Germany, for example, you have what you call the dual system, uh, that is where you study a semester, then you, um, um, or two, three semesters, and then you go for one semester to work in a company where you apply. So try to apply your studied stuff as quickly as possible. Um, very simple, it allows you to see if it's actually as interesting as you think it is. So you can do some reality checks beforehand and there might be stuff in between where a company says why don't you stay on later or why don't we sponsor you until the end of your studies because good people are difficult to find so if a company finds you early in your third semester or you can go two three times back and start there maybe even have an offer already or you do later your master's uh, thesis on something like this so so try, stick your nose into practical stuff very very early on of course. So, Johannes, uh, I wanted to move on to the third section of this interview now. So we've talked about consulting, we've talked about people, and then, and I want to focus on your life as being a coach. So to start off with, I guess, what does a coach actually do? and How did you get into this line, this sort of field, I guess? I, at the risk of repeating myself by total coincidence, um, <clears throat> and uh, uh, as a consequence of interviewing a lot of people through the recruitment uh, process. Uh, now, if you do this, you talk with both sides quite intensively. And somehow by coincidence, I slipped into coaching. Um, executive coaching, that means coaching of business people, uh, is not that different from coaching for boxing, even though it sounds funny. Um, you try to be better than the others. Uh, you try to be better and faster and earlier than others. Uh, that's what we would call performance coaching. You have, of course, also life balance coaching. You have many sorts of coaching. I do performance coaching um, and I do it on executive level, means on more senior level. I've done also mid-levels, technical people and so on and so on, because the main activity is actually to ask questions, since for me the core is that you have the answer uh, to your solutions. I'm not giving it to you. I'm only helping it, uh, this process, by interacting with you and to that extent, uh, if you're asking, can you coach students? Absolutely. Because also in your head is something more than what you think there is. The question is, how do we trigger it out? The question is, how do we make you speak where you have maybe doubts, where you have maybe some idea or some fantasy, but you think, nah, maybe parents will disapprove, uh, or maybe that is, uh, my peers are going to laugh at in university because it's so boring or so unfashionable. But if this is a good fit to what you do and you're excited, then why not? Yeah, but so it's much more, it's reinforcement, it's uh, thought partnering, uh, it's reflecting, and it's always, also, of course, also saying, come on, Champ, you can do a little bit more than what you think you can do. Yeah, so it, it's the stretch, it's also surprise element, um, where you, a coach is only as good as the more perspectives he can offer to you, which is for me why it is an hourly worker, because if you don't progress with a coach, dump him, don't continue. No point if there's a contract, no point if there's a long-term relationship. So it's quite demanding because your client should constantly feel that he's getting better with every hour he spends with you. 
Johannes, you talked about the fact that you are an executive coach. Now, uh, I, 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 I would just like to ask, it seems as though there's a misconception that executive coaching uh, would only entail coaching these you know, CEOs of these top firms. Is that true? I mean, what, who, who are the kinds of people that you actually coach in your, in your work? Thanks for the question, because if you go to any big and famous coaches website, um, there's only CEOs, VPs, and God knows what big shots. Uh, I've also done CEOs and I've also done board members and so on. And it's exciting and it's, it's all nice, but actually every mandate is interesting in itself. Um, I've also coached an opera singer. Um, I've coached technical people um, in crisis situation where the company shut down. Um, I've coached people where there was some uh, problems resulting from mergers and so on. So, or for example, where somebody lost their job. Yeah, if you've worked for 25 years and um, the, the meeting finishes, uh, Sham, you can now pack your things and our HR will get you to your table and you may get, go as, uh, home after that. First of all, you're crashing. You're crashing very, very heavily. And these, are, these can be personally very, very challenging situations, no matter if it is your first job or if you're already 25 years, if you're at the top of the firm, in the middle, if you've been 30 years with the company. So you need to take every person individually um, and not so much as a, as a matter of rank and file. Of course, you can charge bigger fees for a CEO than you can charge for a student. Yeah? But bona fide work can be just as interesting. So, Johannes, you talked about the fact that you coach a variety of people. It's not just CEOs, right? It's, I mean, you even said you've, you've coached opera singers as well. I would like to ask then, if you were to coach perhaps a student that was our age, a student that perhaps just left university, um, how would you approach coaching them? I would, um, here as everywhere else, do a personality profile which means uh, it's a very simple, um, very established um, uh, um, trait profiling, um, simply because uh, you learn more about the person than I can do by um, talking three hours to you, followed by a good in-depth discussion where I need to understand where you're coming from. And it starts from your childhood, from your youth, from where you uh, learn, your uh, parents, um, uh, your country where you're coming from, and what's in your head. What have you done so far? Um, and there must be something in everybody's head is an idea about tomorrow. So what do you have in mind? Um, and there starts then they work together. Are you doubtful about this? Are you excited? Are you maybe too excited about it? And you got blind for certain things. And then we may have to do one or the other reality check where um, I may not be able to tell you some details in it because, I mean, I don't know much about um, uh, programming um, or uh, other professions you might be wanting to go into, but we leave it with sort of like a stock take where you understand this is where I'm coming from. This is what I plan to go. Maybe I need to do a bit of homework here and there first, and then we would meet again to look at what you found out. So it's more a mind shaping process, which you can do basically in any environment because I'm asking only questions. I'm not giving you answers. Awesome, awesome. Um, so Johannes, we'll now be moving, moving over to the next portion of our interview. So uh, in this second half, we'll now be inviting Idris to come along and ask a few questions of his own. Um, off you go. Thank you, Sean. So, Hi, Johannes. Um, good afternoon to you. And so you are a marketing and consumer psychology graduate from your university at LMU in Munich. And I was interested as a psychology student myself, what made you pursue this degree? And on top of that, how long have you known that, you know, during that time, 
that was what you wanted to study? Um, <clears throat> again, embarrassing answers. It sounded very sexy at the time um, to take as an extra topic. So my basic topic uh, was um, marketing at the time, marketing in a much, in a very broad sense. Um, and it was nice because the professor gave it a much, much bigger scope than you would do nowadays, where you go straight into case studies and stuff like this. So obviously understanding the customer is very important. And that is where the psychology came into it. Uh, marketing psychology in this case uh, was simply to understand the customer, customer behavior. Um, so um, a bit tempted by the um, appeal, I went into it, but I didn't regret it. Um, because uh, it is indeed a very interesting topic. It is also, mind you, it was, it was at a time when um, the um, publications about the seduction of advertisement, sublime, um, sublime forms of advertising, and so on in a very different form from today, but customer manipulation was a big topic then. It just has changed its shape. So to understand what is done for that is, of course, interesting. Um, and that's, that was the main uh, driver to get in there. Um, I didn't know enough um, to know what it is, but it became much more interesting once I got into it. And there was a choice between organizational psychology and consumer psychology. And organizational sounded very boring. Funny enough, I did it later with my set, second degree. Um, the reality, again, was a lot more um, uh, mundane. Um, one project which we did was, for example, to change the color of a shampoo bottle. And the great achievement was to change it from um, ugly yellow into a, a very bright bluish green. But actually, it did push the sales up. And that's how boring, how, how detailed it can be if you pick, for example, uh, packaging, color coding, and stuff like this. Yeah. If you fast forward into today, I would definitely take it again because nowadays you have big data, which of course is a dream world. We, we had no access to it at that time, uh, for which you need to understand a lot of IT, a lot where data is coming from. But if you look at advertising today, uh, unless you have access to big data, you can't do almost anything anymore in marketing in a very high precision and uh, pinpoint it. That's very interesting, actually, uh, that, you know, you took the moment to like introspect, you know, and look back to the past and see like, you know, how you would do um, your degree again. And, you know, just to follow up to like what I asked you earlier. So like for me, for example, I chose psychology because in university, for example, you really go in, get to go in depth into exploring why or how humans act the way we act, for example, kind of like similar to like, you know, the consumer side of like marketing. And mm -hmm. When it comes to psychology, for example, you know, it's na in nature, it's very rich in terms of its breadth. And for me as a graduate, soon to be graduate, I guess, I recognize the benefits of it where as a graduate, I could go into fields such as consulting, HR, marketing, even forensic psychology, or even clinical psychology, for example. Mm -hmm. And my question is that how much of what you learned in, uni in university has helped you throughout your whole career path um, up to this day? Um, I go back to what I said earlier because I always try to apply straight away somewhere or get an internship or find somewhere an area. This project, which I said, was uh, actually a contract of um, uh, Procter & Gamble um, uh, without making advertisement, obviously one of the shampoo makers altogether. So we worked as second year students directly plugged in into a huge corporate project. And we could see later, we go to the supermarket and see our color uh, appearing in the shelves, which is quite interesting. 
So um, um, because I tried always to get early applications or tests of what you're doing, um, there was always a practical aspect to it. But I'd like to come back to your uh, earlier mention how broad that field is. Um, in all of the exposure psychology, uh, be it now personality traits, with so trait psychology, organizational science, which I studied later, uh, the dy dynamics of power, in all of these aspects, you always have human behavior or the human nature as a background, which I simply find interesting. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, you're now in Europe as an Asian, I'm in uh, Asia as a European. Uh, there's the cultural aspect, um, there's um, uh, dynamics of uh, groups starting with two or three people. Um, but try to, uh, try to apply it straight away uh, in a practical environment, unless, of course, you want to go into the clinical or research environment. For me, research is absolute horror. Yeah, I mean, if you, look, if you uh, read some of the uh, specialist articles um, where this, the first 10 pages is how the statistical sampling is set up. Um, I fall asleep by the time I'm through it. Uh, I move straight to the end and say, well, what, what was the conclusion? So I'm much more applied psychology than research psychology, uh, but that depends on personality and where your favorite um, uh, dealing is in this process. Thank you for that. So, you know, moving on, um, the youth and students, you know, like us, you know, have always grown up, been advised to find something that we are passionate about. And, you know, however, there are some people who may not necessarily know exactly where their passion lies. Like I know some people, even universities, some in the final year, actually, where they are unsure of where their passion lies and even began to question their degree choices. And I feel like the danger for some of these people is that they might end up working at a job which they may end up dreading. And which is a fear of mine too. So going to your coaching perspective, you know, as a coach yourself, how would you advise someone who may not know where their passion lies? And do you think it's important to find a passion sooner rather than later? So that, for example, a dreaded work life can be avoided. Yeah. The earlier, the better. And if you say, I'm not sure how to find it and so on, you find it very simple. Or uh, when the eyes of somebody start to sparkle, when the voice gets a bit more animated, when the hands start to gesticulate, that's when excitement starts to say, see, now you were, uh, you were grinning. Um, so your face changed. Uh, because something is appealing you in this part of the interview. Obviously, this is of interest to you. So if it's interesting, it's closer to your passion than when you have to drag yourself to it. In every job, there's something which is not very interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, statistics and psychology, for me, a total boredom. Um, but um, ask yourself early, the problem is only if you sit now in your room and you look into the mail and says, Idris, where am I passionate? It's a bit difficult. So it's much easier in interaction. And that was actually the interesting pathway from interviewing first. Then I went into in-depth assessments, which is basically when you try to find out your best people in a company, what else could they do to promote them further? It's not a charitable work by the company. It's simply because if you promote the best people, they get even better. Um, and of course, later you work as a coach with the same people. So I'm always coming back to the same uh, type of people. And the question, what do I like to do? Um, you can't uh, start early enough. Go back to my opera singer. There's, there's 20, 30, 50 different ways, forms of seeing modern opera, classical opera, uh, could be totally different. Somewhere in you are answers for that. But very often people follow their friends, their peers, 
sometimes it's coincidental because this is the place you got in university. It wasn't your first choice, but then you went into it. And yes, you don't want to waste your money. So you try to do a good degree. You can't imagine how often you find later in um, uh, interviews when people have worked five, 10, 15, 25 years, where he says, I'm actually totally fed up with this. Uh, I would like to do something really exciting now. And then you're sitting next to a 50-year-old person who tells you that it's actually very sad. Yeah, because, I mean, here you dragged yourself for 30 years to working life. And then you say, I would like, in my final years, I would like to do something which is exciting. It's, it's a very nice situation to get starting with coaching, but you shouldn't wait until then. But a lot of people do. Um, and I would say that probably... One phenomenon in Asia is that Asians are more compliant, especially to family, parental pressures. You shouldn't be doing this. You should be doing this. But your auntie and your uncle has been doing this. And that's not safe. And that's too risky. Everything is risky. Yeah? Um, so uh, ask yourself the question and, and do it with somebody who you trust. Somebody who has seen maybe a little bit more, but when you have this conversation, make sure that person doesn't talk so much. And Idris, you should be doing this and you should be doing, no, 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 you should be talking your head. That's much more important. And record it because the more you get excited, the less you will pay attention to what you're doing and what you're saying. But in this uh, are the answers to your passion. Yeah, no, I think that, I think for me, like, for example, like I might need to do that as well because like, I just need a reality check. Maybe I might just need to get someone who I trust and just like I do the talking and they just do the listening. <laughs> but thank you for that. Um, we do another call. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, from your years of experience, you know, um, having interacted with many people from various parts of the world. And this goes into like what you mentioned before, but like uh, what was asked of, to you before. But what are the key traits of a successful person? to you and what are the mistakes I guess to avoid? Um, at the risk of repeating myself, um, if you try to be somebody else, um, sooner or later it shows. So stick to who you are. Um, if you're passionate, if you're excited about something, you're pretty close to who you are. Now, if that makes you an odd person, there are always people who like that odd person uh, and you need to just um, spend a bit more effort uh, to find who this would be. I mean, employ, um, employment market is a, is, is a market like anyone else. There's buyers and there's sellers. Yeah? You are who you are. You need to sell this a little bit. Uh, sounds maybe weird, but you have to do it. Uh, for which you need to know what is it, what you are particularly good at. Um, and again, a lot of people don't really know where they're particularly good at and they're emphasizing one certain um, capability, but at the expense of something else. So um, authenticity is very 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 important um, and not to mold yourself after stereotypes after uh, like i said whispers of others um, social media unfortunately has a very very huge influence on how you think you should be how you should look like if you look at uh, companies websites about the workforce funny enough they look all the same it's always of every race category, one person grouped around the ping pong table in the reception area of a very hip um, online uh, based um, uh, business. So what do the people do who are working in boring manufacturing industries? If they're boring, what if they're excited engineering students who actually have fun uh, to manufacture something? 
yeah, which is um, where I had been always at your uh, both previous school um, because engineering is such an overlooked topic. I'm not an engineer, but I'm still excited about it. Um, so uh, to your question is, um, as early as possible, find out where you're good at, where you're passionate at, where you get excited. Um, doing longer hours, working harder, comes easy, no problem. Yeah? Um, so you, um, uh, and um, people notice this, and then they throw more at you because they know uh, it just can run with this topic a, long, a lot longer, a lot further than if I have to ask, have you done this? Have you done this? Why have you not finished your work? Uh, when finally is the deadline? And so on and so on. It should be, you should have fun to come to work. That's another good guidance. Funny enough that, you know, this um, ties into my next question where it's about work. And so your line of work is very people centric, for example, and like yourself, I believe that the relationship that one has with people is an imperative aspect of life. Um, however, at times, you know, when it comes to work, people can suffer from burning out, which I've been through myself a lot last year, as I was devoting a lot of my time to my commitments, you know, less of my time to my personal life and my friends and everything else. So I wanted to ask your thoughts on like work-life balance and what is your advice to achieving or maintaining a good work-life balance? Um, you're probably asking the wrong person since I struggle myself with work-life balance. Uh, <laughs> but maybe to your first question about the burnout, um, I think, um, or I feel personally, the burnout has far too negative um, connotations. It basically means um, uh, there's a hollow shell left, blackened, um, all finished, gone, kaput, whatever. Um, if you burn out, you need to have been on fire before. Now, if you have been on fire, that means you were excited. Maybe you were overexcited. Maybe you were overpassionate. Maybe you said, I dedicate everything to that one. Now, um, sports people and, uh, and um, uh, artists are good examples. They do 99% of their time only that. That's how they become good. That's how they're passionate. Um, that's how they advance. But in these professions, being so single-minded and focused is actually perfectly understandable and acceptable. Elsewhere, you would be already called weird and out of whack and whatsoever. Um, if you are so passionate that you're spending more energy on something than you actually have, which is what you're describing, um, you probably are going to burn your candle much faster than you can. So pacing yourself is far more important. What, what does it mean? Um, I would not stop doing something. When, when people say I'm burned out, usually say radically, I need a change of environment. They move to a different country. Uh, they move to a totally different job. But you were excited before. Why do you throw this all away? Why don't you first try by dialing back a little bit? That, that might not be easy because you're tempted back. An alcoholic uh, has to stop radically. Otherwise, it doesn't work. It's not a little drink here and a little drink there. Yeah, but um, that is dependency. Uh, that's addiction. Um, you could be addicted to your job, but otherwise I would first start to dial back a little bit uh, and see that you rebalance it with something else. But please don't throw it away only because you feel that you are overdone a little bit. Yeah? Think of um, having been on fire before. Don't throw that fire away. Yeah, okay. I, okay. I, think, I think that, um, you know, don't throw the fire away. I think that that really, um, you know, that's a really good advice to give, especially because like, you know, I think that's the one takeaway I got from this um, session. And I guess like I 
I mean, for me personally, I think I need to like reapply that, reassess that again, just to see like you know where my fire lies and for mm. the things that I'm passionate about. So thank you very you much, need, Johannes. You need it for the patient. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank you. Um, yep, over back to you, Sham. Johannes, so in terms of the last question that we, we would like to ask you now, this is a classic question which we ask everyone that we interview. And what that essentially is, is if you could leave the youth with just one piece of advice, what would that one piece of advice actually be? Such heavy questions, and I really struggle to always answer that. And to some extent, I have answered already, be yourself and be authentic, um, would be my single advice. Um, and even if it is only because I've come across a lot of people who were not authentic at all. Um, and at some point of time, it shows. Um, and then you have such a big gap to bridge uh, that it's becoming very difficult because you're basically living two different um, uh, people. Um, so be yourself. Start early with it. Find out um, where you're good at. Find out the, what we talk a lot about, the passion. Um, don't bend too much out of shape. You will have to at a certain point of time, but um, there's a lot more space for the person you are. Um, so uh, be authentic would be the um, short and quick advice. Thank you for listening to this episode of Insights with Experts. We'd now like to introduce a platform that we think would be useful for all of our viewers. Teachers on Wheels is an Australian charity that helps people from all walks of life achieve their career goals. They provide free career guidance and support services to young people in Australia and all over the world, including weekly career webinars with professionals from a diverse range of industries, a resume review service, and a mentoring program in collaboration with Westpac. Thanks for listening in. This podcast has been brought to you by Desera, a platform designed to bridge the gap between the youth and professionals. You can read more about us at desair.org. And you can also check out the section titled Insights with Experts, where you can submit your questions that you might have for future experts and industries that you would like to learn more about. And you can also refer in any experts that you might know yourself.